Representative Jordan Harris is the chairman of the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus. He grew up in Philadelphia and is passionate about improving educational opportunities for kids, opportunities that he himself experienced. He's also passionate about reforming our criminal justice system so that uh, people get a second chance uh, to become productive and self-sufficient members of society. Well, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and I am in the office of Representative Jordan Harris, uh, representative from the 186th district in Philadelphia. Yes. Jordan, good to be with you. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you were elected in uh, 2012, and mm-hmm. then in 16 you were elected uh, chairman of the Pennsylvania Legislative Black Caucus. Uh, but before we get to your elected office. Uh, Tell me about where you grew up, uh, how you grew up, sure. uh, and then we'll get to what brought you to Harrisburg. <laughs> sure. No, listen, I grew up in uh, South Philadelphia. Um, I actually grew up on the same block my entire life. Uh, when I was born, my mother and I lived with my grandmother, uh, and when I was two years old, I'm told, we moved directly across the street from my grandmother. So I've lived... Uh, on the same, I lived on the same block my whole entire uh, childhood. I grew up with me and my mother uh-huh. uh, in the house. My grandmother was across the street, so I had the best of both worlds. You know, if I didn't like what my mother ate, I, I had the option of, of going across <laughs> Go to the street house, to right? see what grandma made. And uh, sometimes I had both meals. Uh, still working on that, but uh, but you know, I, I, I had a, a very interesting uh, childhood. Um, a single parent household, but I you know I have a relationship with my father and. You know, those things are are, are great. Um, I'm my mother's only child. My father has six children, so I do have um, five siblings uh, on my father's side. Um, And And did you grow up with them? Or did did you grow up? Gradually. Yes, gradually um, I started spending more time with my my siblings um, from my father. Um, But in my household, it was literally just me, my mother, my dog, and my cat. So do you admit to being a mama's boy? Is that? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. I, listen. I have no problem with admitting the fact that I love, I love yeah. my mother, mm-hmm. um, and and to this day, um, my mother is one of my biggest and strongest supporters, uh, and one of the biggest influences that I've had upon my life have uh, been directly uh, uh, from my mother. I say that as a mama's boy myself. Right. So uh, <laughs> it's it's something to be proud of. Yes. Uh, Mothers are great things. So, so you grew up in uh, South Philadelphia. Go yep. to go to public school, private school. What, what I was went your options? To, I went to public school the whole way. Uh, G. W. Childs Elementary School, which was across the street from my house. I went there for uh, K through. No, I went there first through fourth grade. Um, then I went to Gerard Academic Music Program, which is a magnet school in Philadelphia that focuses on children with some type of musical talent. And what, and what is yours? I, <laughs> I grew up playing the piano. A lot of people don't know. I've played the piano since I was eight years old. I grew up playing the piano in church and, and, and a, lot of, um, uh, a lot of different places. So I went to Gamp uh, for fifth through eighth grade. And then I went to John Bartram High School through the motivation program uh, for, for high school. Okay. And uh, graduated high school in 2002 and went off to Millersville University where I got a bachelor's degree in government and political affairs 
uh, in 2006. So, so you go to Lancaster County. Yes. Uh, yes. How, how'd you end up in Millersville? Uh, <laughs> did you want to get out of Philly? Was that? So, uh, <laughs> so I probably I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'll tell the story. <laughs> but now you are. No, I'm gonna tell you. So there was an admissions counselor uh, who I actually still friends with named Craig Smith, and Craig came and Craig said, if you fill out the application to Millersville today, you are you get to come overnight for the weekend to stay at Millersville. And he talked about they were having a party one night on campus and a lot of other things. So I legitimately filled out the application to Millersville just so I could spend the weekend. <laughs> I, mean, listen, I was a high school senior, uh, and I'm like, what, go to a college campus for the weekend? I am I'm there. In. You know, so I filled out the application uh, uh, to Millersville. And, and I filled out applications to other schools. But the, the truth of the matter, this is one of the reasons why education is important to me, um, particularly the funding of education through our state system. When all of my financial aid packages came back, Millersville was the university that I could afford. And because mm -hmm. I had a good experience there over that weekend and did more research when I came home, um, it, that's, the, that's how I legitimately ended up at Millersville. It was what myself and my single uh, parent household mother could afford. So, so let's back up before you mm -hmm. head off to college. Yep. Uh, influences in your life? I, I mean, did you start thinking politics? Yeah. I mean, were you paying attention to politics? Was your mom politically active at all? I mean, so, so no, actually, my, my, I mean, my mother and grandmother, they always took me to vote. So like voting. Okay. So you was, saw them oh, absolutely. exercising that right No, yeah. voting was a part of my, my life growing up. And back then they had the little levers that you had to click. So I remember many election days, my mother taking me into the polls with her and allowing me uh, uh, to pull the lever. And then there was a chain that you had to pull that cast all of your votes and opened the curtains. And I, I could, I honestly remember, you know, my mother allowing me to, to, to do those things. Um, but I was, I was, uh, I guess, I guess I was, I was a nerd. I guess you would call mm -hmm. me a nerd. I mm -hmm. mean, that's fine. I, I take that as a badge uh -huh. of honor. You know, I was uh, president of my fourth grade class. Okay. You know, I so was president. Starting early. Yeah. Starting early. Uh, uh, I won that election. Uh, and, and the, the biggest responsibility for the president of the fourth grade class was to organize the breakfast program. So we used to have breakfast in our classrooms, and it was my job as president to organize the students who would come down and pick up the breakfast to take so to their classrooms. So you're ordering waffles with ice cream. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I would no, I wish, but but I, I was organizing the uh, the breakfast program in, in fourth grade. So so I did that, um, and and then interestingly enough, my grandfather, my mother's father, was actually an elected official in a small town called York, South Carolina, for uh, for more than 20 years. Uh, I call him Pop-Pop. My Pop-Pop was uh, a city councilman in York, South Carolina, hmm. and the mayor pro tem in, 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 in York, South Carolina. So he had a, a Grand Am. I don't know if you remember those cars. Oh, yeah. He had a Grand Am, and I remember his first election. We were riding around registering people to vote in his Grand Am. And um, when he won, and to this day I still have the article, um, when he won his first election. Hmm. Uh, he has since retired. I think he retired last year. Um, but, you know, from, from an electoral perspective, you know, being the president of my fourth grade class and seeing my grandfather 
uh, being elected. It was probably the first things that I remember okay. uh, politically. Okay. So uh, did your mom, other than voting, did you guys talk about politics around the house? I mean, was this... Oh, uh, well, so sometimes, so I have my... Um, Family is very important to me and has been throughout my, 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 my childhood. And people oftentimes ask me, um, where did I learn how to, you know, be comfortable with speaking and, and things of that nature. My grandmother's brother, my mother's, my mo the one that lived across the street from my mother's mother, um, my, my grandmother's brother, his name was Jack Wallace. And Jack Wallace was a retired police officer. Uh, from Philadelphia. He mm -hmm. was a detective. And he wanted you to know that he was a detective. <laughs> he wasn't just an officer. He was a detective. Got it. Um, and um, Jack was responsible for my grandmother because my great-grandmother had eight children, okay? Four boys, four girls. Every boy had a girl he was responsible for. So my grandmother's protector was Jack Wallace. Okay. Um, Jack, actually, he's my great-uncle. He was my great-uncle, but he was also my godfather. So... Every holiday, Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving, New Year's, and 4th of July, because 4th of July was also my grandmother's birthday, we would have family events at my grandmother's house that lived across the street from me. Jack Wallace was always there because that was her brother that took care of her. Jack sat at the head of the table all the time. And in and, and, and those days, they had the adult table and the kids' table, mm -hmm. right? So... In order for me to come and sit at the adults' table, I had to be able to do, I had to be able to debate whatever the the, the current event <laughs> issue was okay. with Jack Wallace, uh -huh. my grandmother's brother. And if I could do it, I got to sit at the adults' table and take part in the conversation. If I couldn't do it, I had to go back and sit at the kids' table. So that's kind of huh. you know that's where I started to uh, look at you know different things on TV. I had an Encyclopedia Britannica, the whole set, the whole set in my home, and and I always would prepare myself for Thanksgiving and Christmas, particularly, so that when I came <laughs> into the adults' room, that I could debate with Pop Pop Jack, and you know that's kind of where the inquisitive okay. nature of politics start between my grandfather, uh, being in office in South Carolina, and my mother taking me to vote. Um, I think it was really. The, the fuse or, 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 or the match was lit by Jack Wallace, who always made me be prepared to talk about mm. current events. So you get this free trip to Millersville. You're sold. Uh, I'm going there to call. Did you know what you wanted to major in? Uh, uh, Absolutely. Going there? Okay. Absolutely. You knew you wanted to pursue. Yeah, I wanted to be in government because uh, so I was the president of my fourth grade class, but I was also the president of my senior class. Okay. And the interesting thing is in my in, in our yearbook and our um, – from the program that I was in, I was voted most likely to be involved in politics. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to go to Destiny. Millersville. I, I wanted to go to Millersville to study government. You know, I um, I interned in the office of Senator Anthony Williams. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Who who actually is, he's still my state mm -hmm. senator uh, to this day. And um, I was uh, advocating for my school to stay open. They wanted to close the, the, the motivation program and move it into the main building at Bartram. And I, I didn't think it was a good idea. So I was the president of the senior class, so we organized teachers and students uh, and parents, and we went to a meeting. It was called the Eastwick Pack. That was the group that met. And they met over on 78th and Lindbergh. 
and I went to that meeting and I talked about why we should keep the school open. And it was at that meeting that uh, the senator sent one of his staff members. I remember her very well, Alicia Burbage. And she said the senator wanted to speak to me. So I spoke with him. Uh, he invited me to come out and work on his reelection campaign that year and to learn the political process. After that, he gave me an internship in his office. Then that was the summer before I went to college. And uh, that was so while you're there, all came are you together. Think, yeah, are you thinking, hey, I want to run for office at some point? Because uh, oh, I know that's not the first job you had. You had another job before yeah. you were elected. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that I want to run for office per se, as much as it was I like this. I like yeah. how you can use the political process to help people, to mm -hmm. do the right thing. And I just want to be involved in it. Didn't know that that would mean me running for office myself or me working for somebody. But, you know, I was very much uh, interested in government from from that time. Once once I started working for, for Senator Williams, it, it was, I mean, and he doesn't know this, but whenever I didn't have anything to do in the office, I used to click on all of the senators and read all of their backgrounds. I used to click on all of the members of the House and read their backgrounds and Google them and just read all of the information that I could find on who these folks were in the General Assembly. Hmm. So I know that uh, you've got a, other degrees mm -hmm. uh, and are, are st I think, still pursuing yes. a doctorate. Uh, yes. So you continue to pursue education. Yes. Uh, what, and the purpose of, of all your education, I mean, did you say, look, this is going to help me be a better lawmaker? Or did you have other plans? Because uh, I know you have a master's in education. Yes. Uh, what, were you thinking of teaching at some point? So I was, I, I, I actually was, I was teaching middle school social studies. Okay. Um, and I kind of stumbled upon teaching. Um, after college, looking for employment, I stumbled across teaching at a, a Christian, uh, a Christian private school uh -huh. and I enjoyed I enjoyed teaching but I was teaching fourth grade and I just knew there was no way I could do fourth grade I mean <laughs> well it prepared you listen, well for the legislature God right? bless anyone who teaches first second third fourth grade God bless you because I mean everything was oh he's digging in his nose oh she stole my pencil listen I would tell jokes they wouldn't get my jokes it I, I just I I I was not cut out for fourth grade, um, but halfway through the year, I was offered a position teaching middle school social studies at a charter school in uh, the Germantown section of Philadelphia, uh -huh. and I got to tell you, I fell in love. Mm. I mean, it was the place for me. Um, at the time, I was 22, 23, so I was able to relate to a lot of the students because, you know, they were ages of what would be considered a little brother or, or whatnot, mm -hmm. so I was able to 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 really you know find my legs so um so to speak in in teaching middle school social studies but i thought to myself if i'm going to do this i need more education on education and that's why i went back to school to get uh, my master's degree from cabrini college uh and and honestly that's why i started my doctoral work in educational leadership mm -hmm. is that something you're going to complete so uh, my, mo my, listen, no, yeah. my mother may hear this podcast, so I have to say absolutely. You know, it's funny, you know, all of the, you know, the, the things I've been blessed to do in the legislature, every now and then my mother still calls me and says, when are you going to finish your doctorate degree? And I was just like, uh, okay, mom, I'm going to do it. And, and honestly, at some point in time, I, I, I will finish it. 
um, because I do believe education is important, but I'm really passionate about um, the discharging of education and how we educate and the different uh, pedagogies around it and the different delivery methods around it. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to finish. Well, and I know that education is an important uh, issue for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners uh, have no idea what it's like in uh, our urban centers, uh, what education is like in the city of Philadelphia, the challenges that are faced there. Um, what do you see as uh, kind of the, 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 the policy solutions that we need to be pursuing uh, to help make sure that we're giving every child an opportunity to do what you did? To, to go off to co- to get a good elementary, middle school, high school education, mm-hmm. go off to college if they want to, or mm-hmm. even say, look, I want to go into the trades. I want to pursue working with my hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you've thought a lot about this, so mm-hmm. that's a big question. I'm teeing no. it up for you. So, I mean, listen, I, I, um, I understand the importance of education, um, because I've, I've, I've lived what it looks like when people don't get a quality education. And sadly, in Philadelphia, there are, there, there are kind of track systems. I mean, you see the young people who go off to the elite schools, the Mastermans, the Girls Highs, the Centrals, and they get a certain level of education. And then you see the young people who go to the neighborhood high schools and you see the level of education that they get. And it's different. Mm-hmm. And the outcome of many of those young people show the difference. Um, the sad thing that we usually do is we usually focus on the small minority um, who were successful in spite of and not successful because of. And there's a difference. You know, though there are, there are going to be young people that, regardless of whatever situation you put them in, they're going to shine. Would would, uh, would you put yourself in that that uh, that category that you were able to overcome uh, the challenges, or have things changed so dramatically uh, back home uh, in terms of the schools that that are there? What what's the... well, you know, I listen. My mother has a degree. Uh, my grandmother has a degree. My grandmother was a school teacher for thirty two years. So even if I didn't, you didn't have any choices, right? Here, right? If, <laughs> even if I didn't get it at school, uh-huh, I was definitely uh-huh. going to get it at home and I was blessed to have a lot of mentors around me that helped groom and develop me to, to get to where I am in life. So, you know, I, I, I couldn't put myself in either of those categories because, you know, for me, I, I, I was going to do well because my family was going to make mm-hmm. sure of it. But there's a lot, there are a lot of young people who they're going to be the first in their family to go to college. And even though their parents and grandparents care for them, there are just certain things educationally that if there's a deficit at the school, their families won't be able to make mm-hmm. up the deficit. And what I've seen and, and what I understand is that there are there, there's a difference in quality and education in many of our schools across this commonwealth, but particularly in Philadelphia. And what happens is we siphon off the good, the quote-unquote good students, and you send them to the magnet schools they send them to girls high central masterman which they have to apply to get in correct and they only have a certain number of seats not every kid can get in yeah right so they have to apply they have to be of a uh have to have test scores and grades of a certain level Mm -hmm. to get into those schools 
and we siphon off all of those students and we send them to these magnet programs and for the most part we give them the best teachers and then there's the rest of us there's the young people who who couldn't get into those schools and i say this as a young person who went to a magnet school gamp was a magnet school you had to have certain level of grades and you had to have a musical talent to get in Bartram Motivation, while it is a part of Bartram High School, which is a neighborhood high school, it was the the magnet program. program. It, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I get so yeah. I'm telling you not yeah. what I heard, I'm telling you what I know <laughs> that you have to take and here's the threat. The threat that most of these schools give is hey, if you don't behave, if you don't do well, we will kick you out and send you back to your neighborhood school. Mm. But when you have the conversation over education in Philadelphia, people aren't talking about that private elite segment of schools that have been set up within the, the structure that's mm-hmm. already there. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you look at many of these schools, they lack diversity, many of them. When you look at the, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to knock the schools because, you know, many of these schools do a lot of great work. But if you look at a school like Masterman in Philadelphia, there's very little diversity in that school. There's a small number. And, what of stu- do you, and when you say diversity, what do you mean? The, the color of the kids? Absolutely. Uh, the economic level? The color, level, the economic yeah, level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have certain schools where, you know, where many of our, our, our city's elite get to send their students. And, mm-hmm. and what happens is people talk about, you know, the traditional public education and the necessity of it, but they're only saying it because they're talking about sending their kids to these schools. They're not talking about it like they want to send their kid to South Philly High or, or, or just regular Bartram or, 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 or regular West Philly High. They're not talking about that. They're talking about sending their kids to Penn Alexander, which is an elite school. They're talking about sending their kids uh, to Masterman, which is an elite mm-hmm. school. That's what they're talking about. But the fact is that there are you know, a majority of those schools that they're not that elite um, what I call public-private school. Um, and a lot of our young people are in those schools. Mm-hmm. And many of those young people, had it not been for school choice and charters and other, those students would not have an option. And one of the things that I tell people all the time is that school choice has been around forever. <laughs> Folks just didn't know about it. Because what happened in my neighborhood when you grew up, and it was time for you to go to school, and your mother didn't want you to go to that neighborhood school, she used your grandmother's address or your cousin's address or your aunt's address or whoever's address where they lived in a good catchment area. Mm. So, and, and, and the interesting thing is if you're from another part of the state, this makes no sense to you because you only have one high right, school. Right, right. You, you know, you only have <laughs> one this and one that. But in, our, in, in Philadelphia what happened, you have – catchment area where if you live in this area you go to this school period right before charters that's how it was you live in this area this is the school you go to so what people would do is they would find their relative who lives in the who lives in the area with the The best school and they would use that person's address as if their child lived there so the child could go to that school so before all of this other school choice and, and, and things are going on before charters and whatnot. That's what people were doing to find better alternatives for their children. And when we have these conversations about education, we think, you know, and we try to push the movement on school choice 
off on like, oh, this was a movement of of of, of business owners who were coming into the city trying to trying to take over the school district. No, the school choice movement started with parents who wanted other alternatives for their their students. You know how I know? Because I was one of the students. But when I was in eighth grade and I was making a decision on what high school to go to, my mother actually took me to the orientation um, uh, meeting for one of the new opening charter schools that would be coming in my neighborhood. That charter school has now become uh, uh, prep charter in in South Philadelphia, which is a a fairly good school. Mm -hmm. They do very well there. Um, My mother didn't want me to go to that school because it was a new school. She wanted me to go to somewhere more established. So that's how I went to Bartram Motivation. But I was, I came of age to go to high school in 1998. So if you know anything about the charter law, I was was, right at the beginning. I was right at the beginning. So the movement started, you know, primarily with parents wanting another option Mm -hmm. for their children. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's grown since then. Um, There are, uh, I think, 80-something, maybe 90-something charter schools in in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Some are great. Mm -hmm. Some are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my theory has been from, from the door, if a school is doing well, we should support it and help it grow. If a school is not doing well, we should see how we could turn it around. And if after a while we can't turn it around, we should look for other options for those children. Because students don't get to do fourth grade over right. again. They right. don't get to do fifth grade over again. They need their school to work on day one for them. Do we spend enough in our schools? Do you, is it a lack of resources that's uh, causing these other schools to not perform uh, to standards that would uh, deliver the education kids deserve? Or is it how we're spending the money? I mean, what do you see as, and then uh, kind of what's, what's the policy solution to this, Jordan? How do we get so that not every kid has a mom that's riding them to make sure they get that education mm-hmm. or can access a magnet school, or even get into a charter school. You know this. You mm-hmm. got tens of thousands of families on waiting lists right. for charter schools in Philadelphia. They're trying to escape schools that aren't performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you what do you see as? And I know it's a complex question, and it I'm is. looking for a simple answer, right? Uh, but what do you see we need to do? How are we going to make sure that every kid that wants to get a good education can do so? Sure. So for me, um, um, there are uh, there there's seven there's seven not seven several uh, different things, and 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 I buy I am by no means professing to be the end all be all expert on this, and I am by no means saying that any of the sol- the solutions ideas that I give are the only ideas. But yes, funding is an issue. Um, we need more. We need adequate funding um, uh, in Philadelphia. We need equity in our funding. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I don't believe in equal funding because equal funding is not going to solve the problem. There are young people who are starting behind other young people, and it's going to take additional resources to bring that young person who starts behind to the level where they graduate, where they are with everyone else. Did we start to do that with the new funding formula of how we're, uh, you know, put uh, spending money? Yes, I believe the new funding formula is a step in the right direction. But as you know, we're not putting all of our dollars yeah, it's a fraction in that. of our we're current, just putting yeah. yes we're putting a fraction of those dollars the new money is what we're we're putting out through the funding formula um 
so funding is an issue. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Philadelphia School District, and not just Philadelphia, but many of our urban uh, and some of our rural districts need additional funding. And here's the reason why. Um, we, we, we fund f- two things. For years, the state's portion of school funding has been decreasing. As most people know, a portion of the school's funding is local and a portion is state. For years, the funding, and not the dollar amount, right. I'm not saying the dollar amount. It's only amount, gone up, right? The dollar yeah. amount. It's but see, here's a, yeah. it always goes yeah. up when yeah. you think right. about it. Because you, you, the, the, the cost of, 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 of doing business continues to go up every year. Your electric yeah. bill, the, the, the price of gas, all it continues yeah. to go up. So, yes, we say the dollar amount is going up, but the percentage that that dollar amount from the state represents in the whole pie is going down. So our state share of education, when you compare that with the share um, that the local government is, is, is doing, that is going down. So what has happened is a lot of local governments have had to make up the difference. The problem is because we fund our education on property tax value, places that have a high property, have, have, have expensive homes, that property tax value gives more money to the schools. Where places like Philadelphia, who make their property, the, the value of the home isn't as high, their share is less. So what I say to folks all the time is, in Philadelphia, you're giving children a $50,000 education because the home is $50,000, where in other parts of the Commonwealth that aren't really far from, I mean, if you go out to Gladwin, you know, that school district is giving their kids a $500,000 education because the property, t- the, the school is getting money based off of the value of the property. So, so you, you ask for solutions. One of the things that I think you ultimately would have to do, and this is going to take a lot for us to get here because it's, it, it really is about a shared finance. I think the state needs to set a standard. Every student, this we know that this is the dollar amount that every student needs, we need per student to get to. And if the, the city's money doesn't get there, the state fills it in, okay? And any anything over that the local government wants to do because of the higher value of homes, they can do it. But there has to be a standard by which the state says all children need to reach this. If it's fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars student, whatever we decide is that number, and we we will have to come to what that number is, and it should be able to fund a quality education for our young people. We need to find out what that is, and what that means, Matt, is that. Some school districts are going to get more, and some school districts mm-hmm. are going to get less. Mm-hmm. But that's because some local governments can afford yeah. to do more, and some can and some can't. But at the end of the day, it should matter to all of us because when our students aren't being successful, they end up in our criminal justice yeah. system, which which we're all yeah. paying for. Right. Right. They end up on some type of social service, which <laughs> we're all paying yeah. for. So you know. You know, I think it was uh, I think it was Frederick Douglass that talked about it. it, it it's it's better to to to, to build a, a a a child than repair a man, and and financially hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. It's better for us to to spend the the sixteen, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars that's necessary now to properly educate our our young people than to spend the forty thousand dollars that we're ultimately that's spending right. to incarcerate yeah. them. 
Well, and I think that, uh, you know, that's absolutely right. In fact, um, a number of years ago, when we were talking about uh, a voucher, you know, funding the mm -hmm. child, uh, and I was over in a school district that uh, one of the best in this area here, Cumberland Valley, and I'm telling these parents, uh, here's why you should care about this. It's not because your school uh, isn't good. In fact, it's, it performs off the charts across mm -hmm. the state. It's because you pay for the failures that are happening across the river, and I'm pointing into Harrisburg. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly what you said, either in our human services, mm -hmm. welfare system, Absolutely. or our prison prisons, right. which are the two highest costs. So, And that's the common denominator of but people we're also, trapped in those, right? But we're yeah. also paying by underperformance, too, because yeah. when folks aren't getting the quality education um, that, they, that they deserve, they're also not reaching their full potential. So we're also yeah. missing out on a lot of, of, of full potential that could be harnessed here in Pennsylvania that could be starting businesses, that could be finding cures for diseases, that could be doing a lot of things. So so for me, I think we have to look at the shared responsibility of what we have as a commonwealth um, to not say that, okay, my tax dollars are going to pay for that kid. No, to say that my tax dollars is going to the commonwealth so that the commonwealth can do right by all of its children. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but, but, I'm, but I'm also the same person that will say, while we need additional resources, we also need all of our schools to be more accountable for those dollars also, as well. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the thing. I am a school choice supporter. But I think charter schools need more accountability. It's one of the reasons why I'm a co-sponsor on House Bill 97 and have been working with my colleague Mike Reese and others uh, on both sides of the aisle and both chambers to come up with a good update to the charter law. The charter law is over 20, year, is 20 years old, and, and while it was a good start, mm -hmm. there are different things that need to be changed in some, in some instances how we fund some of our schools, um, how we um, – how we authorize them, how we uh, how we um, see if they're doing well renew or their not, charter, yeah, renew yeah, their yeah, charter. Because yeah, yeah. I'll be the first to tell you, some charter schools do not need to be yeah. in existence. Yeah. They are not doing right by our children. They are not doing right by our dollars and cents. But then there are some who are doing phenomenally well, who are outperforming many of our district schools. And those schools need to be given the opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so... It's a complex issue. Another thing that I think is important with with our schools is the distribution of of, of human capital and human resources. And many of our uh, and many of our school districts across the Commonwealth, superintendents are hamstrung with how they distribute the human capital. So, for example, mm -hmm. if I know that I have a teacher who's excellent in math and they're at this school, they're at school A, but I need them at school B. There are some some districts across the Commonwealth where the superintendent doesn't have the authority because of their their contract to say, I need you to go here. You know, teachers have the ability to choose where they want to go, what schools they want to teach at because of seniority. And while I understand that, it, 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 it should be the education professional's option or ability to move around where they think they need. Um, their their talent, which you'll see in many of our schools that are struggling, is when you go into those schools, you have a lot of young teachers who will have a lot of energy, but who are still learning the profession of being a teacher. And what we need to do is to make sure um, that in those schools that are struggling the most, that we have the we have the best 
teachers who have the most experience. If I know that I need to move these students from, you know, one grade level to a next, or I need to move them to two grade levels because they're so far behind, you know, I'm going to need an expert teacher to do that. And sometimes in many of our schools, we don't have the option to do that because, you know, our fact, our, our teachers are, are, are because of the seniority picking which schools they need to, they want to go to. So that, you know, that's something, you know, something else that I believe that um, we could change to help, uh, to help, you know, educational leaders be able to maneuver their staff and send them to the places uh, that they need to go. I mean, and, and listen, clearly we're not going to solve all of education's issues and education's problems uh, here today in this one conversation. But no, but and, and how do I mean? How do we get there? Because there, there's a lot of entrenchment of kind of the status quo. I mean, you know this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are these are tough battles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do we get uh, greater consensus? Because look, the needs that you have in your community are different than a lot of the rest of the the, the state. And our our challenge might be that uh, you get an interesting combination right. of of urban Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, with some Republicans that are for school choice, but it doesn't cut across party lines, right, on, mm-hmm. on, on a lot of these education issues. Well, I think, I, I think the, first, the first thing is we have to all agree that, you know, what we're going to do is going to be in the best interest of the children. And, and I said that to a, a different group earlier today because one of the things that troubles me at times is that I feel like when we have the conversation about education, we have the conversation about how education affects everybody first and then the children last. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when every everyone that comes to that school, they're coming to that school because of that child and because of the children who are getting their education. So the first and foremost, um, the, the most important thing that we should be talking about in education is our children. I think the second thing is we have to remove the conversation about money out of it. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. Understanding that we need additional funding, but it shouldn't be this costs us this. Like I always hear in the school choice conversation, well, charters are costing the district X, Y, and Z. Well, well no, they're not because they're educating children. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like you're taking the money and spending it on another purpose. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that it's it's not costing and you actually keep money for a kid you that's no not even there. Educate. Yeah, right. Well, and, 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 <laughs> that, and that and you know, and I get, you know, some of my So you, you know, can have every kid, 100% of the kids go to a charter school and that school district still keeps about still 20%. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and people don't people don't understand that is that, you know, there is about, you know, charter schools are educating young people on 7 to 8 um was 7 about eighty percent of eighty percent yeah, of the yeah, money, yeah. right? So, so, so they're doing that with less money, mm-hmm. and I, I, I always wonder, you know, why aren't we quite? Uh, well, how are some of these charter schools outperforming district schools when they're doing it on less money? We should be with asking the same same kids. Yeah, same we should kids, be asking. We should be yeah. we should be asking those questions. So, you know, we got to stop talking about it just from a dollars and cent and, and say, listen, if we want to have a quality education, you know. If money wasn't a, if if we didn't have to talk about dollars and cents, how much would it cost? And I think that's where we should start. That looking at that number and saying, okay, we know that this is what it costs to educate children, uh, and and this is what we every child in Pennsylvania we should start off with that. 
And that's why I'm so big on criminal justice reform. Yeah. And that's a good way to pivot because I know you're passionate about criminal justice reform. Yep. It is uh, after, well, we've got health and human services, our, our welfare programs. Uh, then you've got education. And then, and then the third the largest budget DLC. is, uh, that's right, Department, Department of Corrections. Corrections. Yep. Um, and this is where I think the, the, the conservatives, uh, kind of Republicans that used to you know, be the tough on crime, have begun to get smart on crime yes, uh, and move in the direction of, look, 90% uh, of the people who are coming into our prisons are going to come out the back door. Yep. And we better do a better job of helping to either rehabilitate or give people the education that they didn't get that mm -hmm. caused them to get there and to, to be a productive member of society. And as you noted, when we're spending $40,000, uh, it's more expensive to send kids to uh, the state pen than to Penn State. Absolutely. Right? And that, so we better get this thing right. And I know you've been working on those issues. You've been passionate about them. Uh, yes. What are the, some of the things, one, that you've accomplished? Mm -hmm. I know you've gotten some good things done. Yep. Uh, but where do we need to go? Sure. So one thing, um, Act Number 5 of 2016 uh, is a law that provides criminal record sealing for those who have misdemeanor twos and threes that are of a nonviolent nature. The governor signed that into law February 2016. It went into, uh, it went into act uh, probably November. Mm -hmm. uh, so and what, what kind of crimes are, when you say misdemeanor two and three? Well, like what? two and threes are your lowest, uh, three, three is, well, three and ungraded misdemeanors, depending on your summary offenses. But two and three, uh, so possession, some retail theft, uh, uh, some uh, well, simple assault wasn't mm -hmm. covered under this bill, but um, simple assault will be a two, depending. Um, you know, so it's a lot of the and so this would say that after a certain amount of time, after ten, okay, right. So the way the law was written, mm -hmm. after ten years, you could go to court and get a judge can give it an order of limited access which then seals it so when you go and apply for a job, it doesn't yeah. show up. So, so you did something dumb when you were a kid. Yes. Uh, you, ten years passes, yes. uh, and it doesn't prevent you from getting a job uh, as you're going out. Right. So I call it a jobs bill mm -hmm. because I think that this helps uh, get people back into employment, and, and, and in many cases it will help them uh, further their employment because some of the positions that they're going to um, you know, this record would hinder them. Now that it's sealed, they'll be able to be gain, gainfully employed. So that was one thing that mm -hmm. we, we've had success with. Um, but just today, um, uh, House Bill 1419, which is a bill that I co-authored with uh, Republican Representative Cheryl Delosier from uh, Cumberland County, mm -hmm. um, that was actually just passed out of the House Judiciary Committee today, and it's on its way uh, to the, the full floor. That actually expands what we did in Act Number 5. That's called the Clean Slate Bill. What this bill, uh, as amended, will do is um, anybody after 10 years who have the misdemeanor 2s and 3s uh, and simple assault is included in this one. And, you know, possession, small amounts, all that stuff. M2s, M3s that are of a nonviolent nature, mm -hmm. okay, non, this is mm -hmm. nonviolent stuff. After 10 years, those things will automatically be sealed on your record. So you won't even have to go to court to petition the court for M2s and M3s. M1s would now be under Act Number 5, which would be M1s. You would now have to go and petition the court to get those sealed. Mm. So should this become law, M2s and M3s after 10 years will automatically be sealed. Uh, and I think as well as um, 
summary offenses and then the the things where what we call null pros, which means you went to court and it didn't uh, go any further with the charge, so you were just charged, you were never convicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After ten years, those things will automatically be sealed, and then if you have an M one, you'd have to go to a court and petition the court, uh, and then that if the judge grants the petition. Then that would be sealed. And this is this is basically solving the problem that uh, when you've committed a crime, uh, but then you've you've been a good citizen. Yep. Uh, that the, your, the punishment doesn't continue through the rest of your life, Absolutely. depriving you of economic opportunity. Absolutely. So that passed out of of, of the judiciary committee today. Um, so we intend that to run on the floor. To, it passed unanimously mm. out of judiciary committee. So it has a lot of strong bipartisan support. The uh, Harrisburg Chamber, Pittsburgh Chamber support it. So this is this is so as this is bi- kinda, this is this bipartisan. Is as, as bi- this is as bipartisan <laughs> as you can get. Um, many times in the legislature. So um, we 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 believe it'll run on the floor and go over to the Senate, uh, where we believe it won't uh, it shouldn't have an issue. And hopefully we can get it to the governor's desk. The last not the last thing, but one of the other things that we did um, in uh, I believe May of last year. The governor did an executive order to ban the box on all state level jobs. Uh, and three days later, after he did that, the Civil Service Commission did it. So what that means is that when a person applies for a job at the state, mm-hmm. they no longer have to check um, if they were convicted of a crime. The only time that they have to do that is if the law requires it, because there are still there are certain positions sure. where it's a sensitive nature yeah. and you need um, to know if a person is convicted. So if the law stipulates that that has to happen, um, folks still have to do it. But outside of that, folks will no longer have to uh, check the box. So what that means and why that's important is that um, their resume won't get tossed to the side just because they have a record. They'll have an opportunity, uh, if they're qualified, to at least come in and, and kind of sell themselves in an interview after that, the person is allowed, um, the employer is allowed, well, the, the government will be allowed to run a background check. But at least you will have at first met the person and then can make a determinants based off the record if you're willing to give them a shot mm-hmm. because now you've met that person. So act number five, clean, um, which was in six, 2016, clean slate, which is moving now and has moved through House Judiciary and last year's. Um, um, ban the box um, executive orders from both the governor and the Civil Service Commission have uh, been several of the things that we've been doing and have had success in with regards uh, to criminal justice reform. So uh, last question here, uh, because I think uh, lots of uh, folks in Eagles Nation uh, empathized with you uh, during this effort to get an E A G L E. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't go. Uh, no, I have don't to. I have there, to man. because you're we were doing so uh, well. Uh, we were doing were, so well. But I have to say that your reaction in the background. Oh, you saw the video. Oh my goodness! Uh, everybody had to had to say, "I am so with that guy who's got his hands on his head, uh, saying, oh my goodness, watching the train wreck uh, as oh, it yes. happened.'" Uh, Listen, we and it, it, it's crazy because the press conference had nothing to do. <laughs> right, right. With the Eagles, but my 
My colleague, you can blame your, your former my big brother, boss, uh, my big brother, Senator Anthony Williams, wanted to do an Eagles uh, chant. So, um, yeah, that was um, that was interesting. Yeah, that that will live in infamy, of course. Now, uh, uh, but uh, but we won. But you, you won Super exactly. Bowl champs. That's right. That's Super Bowl right. champs. So, well, with that, uh, Jordan, thanks for taking time to come on Brews and Views. Uh, appreciate the things that you're working on because uh, I think it is that area of opportunity that. You get that bipartisan opera, uh, you know, effort for kids in education and those that uh, are, you know, have been incarcerated and say, hey, we want to make sure we offer those second chances. We are moving in the right direction. And, you know, I really believe that when we work together, Democrat, Republican, rural, urban or suburban, and we build consensus, I believe we build a better Pennsylvania. Well, let's keep doing it. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.